Welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I am your host, Derek Malonzak, and this is episode 38 of the podcast. And today's podcast, uh, we're going to talk about something that I cannot believe we have not talked about so far. I almost feel like I've done you a disservice by not having dedicated a full episode to the stages of change in my first semester series of these podcasts. But fear not, young college students, I will be bringing you this episode today and I'm very excited to do it. So welcome. Um, for many of you, this might be spring break week. It is for me. <laughs> I'm very much excited and enjoying my spring break this week. I still have work, just in case you guys wonder if professors... Uh, have off for spring break as well. We do not. So I'm still working this week, but the um, reduced burden of having to do the, you know, the weekly prep for class and, you know, grading of assignments because I got all of my grading, you know, I'm all up to date as of last week is a nice little break to focus on some other things that I've been neglecting as part of my job. So when school's on, it's pretty much all about class and some other things that I do as part of my job kind of fall by the wayside a little bit more than I'd like them to be. And I use this week to sort of catch up with a lot of those things. And it's been really productive so far. And I look forward to continued productivity. And I hope you guys are using your spring break for something um, productive. It doesn't necessarily have to be productive in the sense of, you know, getting a ton of shit done on your goal this week. Um, For some of you, it might, productivity might be recharging your batteries, um, relaxing for the second half of the semester, and putting yourself in a good position mental health-wise. And that's fine, too. I'm cool with that. So today, quick tip before we get started. I know I hear a lot of people talk about how hard it is to focus on work when you're trying to, uh, when you're online and there's so many temptations, you know, Facebook or YouTube or anything that you distracts you from doing what you probably should be doing. So I have a solution for you guys today. Um, I, the solution that I'm going to be talking about is called Stay Focused, S-T-A-Y-F-O-C-U-S-D. So there's no E at the end there. And it is a Chrome plugin. So if you're not too familiar with plugins, let me just give a quick overview. So depending on what um, internet browser you use, I I use Chrome. uh, If you go into the plugins, you can kind of add little extras, little bells and whistles to your browser to make it function a little easier or a little bit better or a little more efficiently. There's, you know, uh, a pop-up blocker, for example, is a type of plugin that you may have installed. So there's a plugin you can get for free called Stay Focused, and basically it will help you by distract by reducing the amount of distractions that you have. So this is from the actual plugin website. Stay Focused is a productivity extension for Google Chrome that helps you stay focused on work by restricting the amount of time you can spend on time-wasting websites. <laughs> Once your allotted time has been used up, the sites have the sites you have blocked will be inaccessible for the rest of the day. It is highly configurable, allowing you to block or allow entire sites, specific subdomains, 
paths, pages, even specific in-page content. So it's pretty cool. You could say, all right, I want an hour of, you know, bullshit time <laughs> to do whatever the fuck I want online and go on my Facebook and go on my YouTube and watch my silly cat videos and whatever, read about Argyle socks, <laughs> reference to last week's podcast. And then after that hour, shoom, all that shit goes on lockdown. And only thing you have to focus on is your schoolwork. So I think that's a pretty cool thing. I've, I downloaded it a long time ago, and I have yet to actually implement it. But this has um, this episode has spurred me on. I will be trying it out in the next week. And so I hope you do, too. If you do not use Google Chrome, you probably should be, but that's not for me to decide. There are uh, similar plugins in the other major browsers. So I'm sure Safari has one, Firefox, etc. Um, so hope you enjoy that little quick tip. Hope it helps you in the second half of the semester with staying focused and being a little more productive when you want to be. <laughs> All right, let us move on. We have today a question from our college, our good old college subreddit. And I've been trying to post a lot more in the last week there. I decided that uh, it's not right to take questions and answer them and not alert the person that I'm answering them into this level of depth. So I do plan on kind of posting a major list of all of the questions I've responded to at some point. But I, I put a little goal, a little habit I'm trying to get into of answering at least one question a day on there, specifically the ones that have sort of a mental health focus. Um, but anyway, this one does not. This one was a very highly upvoted uh, article about the question of, is college the best four years of your life? So some interesting quotes that I had from this article. The cliche about college being the best four years of your life is an outdated ideal that is a toxic mindset for college students to have during their time here. Allowing these four years that happen very early on in your hopefully long life to be cemented as the quote-unquote the best forces us to seek something more than what is actually happening in front of us. And this limits, this idea limits life's potential and makes us accept that daily adult life must be horrible. And that is a well-said and well-constructed paragraph from this article that I am linking to in the show notes today from thedailycal.org. So this person posted this on Reddit, and a couple of people posted some counter ideas, but I tend to agree that this is sort of bullshit, and it is an outdated ideal. And I want to talk about why I believe that today. So when I was in college... <laughs> A good, uh, you know, 15 to 20 years ago, I entered my freshman year in 1996, and I was going to a state school, although I was not an in-state resident. So I was at a public school, but not in the in the state that I resided in. So I was paying out-of-state tuition, and it was, you know, more expensive than I would have liked to pay, but it was affordable. And it afforded me the ability to really not have to work during my time in school, I was a full-time student, you know, for the most part taking about 15 credits, five classes a semester. 
I did the traditional student, you know, college student route. I went straight from high school into college and I did my four years. I got done in four years and I was able to graduate. And looking back, they were some pretty fucking awesome years. They were not the best years of my life. Um, I definitely believe right now <laughs> so far is this is the best point of my life. But uh, so I can at least quash that last statement about adult life being horrible, at least for this adult. And I think the ideal, the the main reason it's outdated these days is because even before I was in school, and I felt this, but before me must have even felt it more, there was certainly pressure to do well in school. But that was really your only pressure. You didn't have to deal with a lot of things that you guys are dealing with right now. The biggest thing is the enormous amount of debt that many of you are taking on to fulfill this quote-unquote amazing college experience. And that is going to be weighing on you guys heavily, I imagine. Even if you aren't paying it right now, the thought of having to pay it back really does make you feel a lot more pressure put on yourselves to perform because you think about how much debt you're accruing and what it's going to look like when you're done. And that is a severe barrier to being able to live this mindset of, oh, it's the best four years of my life. I have no responsibilities. Uh, No, you have this responsibility of doing well because you're taking on all this debt. So there's a lot of pressure to perform. And that does not feel good, usually. The other thing is due to the amount of money it costs to attend college, to offset that debt, people are working and going to school much more than they used to. I made a point, I think, in a podcast a few weeks ago about non-traditional students actually outnumbering traditional students at this point. So people that have been out of school for a few years or gone to school, come left, worked for a while, come back, you know, anyone that's not in the, the situation that I described myself in a few minutes ago, you know, going right from college, in, right from high school into college for four years, graduating on time. People that don't do that outnumber the people that do at this point. And you guys have it hard as well. Uh, and for the most part, that, that population of students are all working at some degree, part-time, full-time, because they have to. And that's what I had to do when I was at my master's degree. The, the pressure was on. So if you are stuck with a job and school, how fucking gr- much does that feel like the best four years of life? To me, that seems like a pretty horrifying time because of the added responsibility. And the thought is, damn, when I'm done with this schooling, I'll at least have a lot less responsibility. I won't have to be completely on and performing in all of my classes anymore because I won't have classes. I'll have completed them and I can focus on you know, my work, I could focus on me, I could focus on whatever the hell it is I want to focus on besides school. So I could see why a lot of people feel that way. Let me return to the article for a second. It's like New Year's Eve. There is an incredible amount of anticipation and lofty expectations that it has to be the best night ever, complete with champagne bottles popping, midnight smooching, and electric dancing. But while it is happening, I anxiously look around at everyone being secretly jealous of how much fun they seem to be having while I spiral down into a depressed level of disappointment, since I am actually just far too sweaty and far too sober and far too tired for any of this shit. There's too much pressure to make it an unattainable level of amazing. 
And when I realize that level is forever elusive, I feel as if I'm doing something wrong and becoming self-conscious about the time I'm having rather than enjoying each second. I could totally relate. If you're looking around everybody and they seem to be having the fucking time of their lives, it starts to make you question like, wait, why aren't I having the best time of my life right now? Like, what's going on with me? What's wrong with me? Why am I such a horrible person? And, you know, this negative death spiral of emotions ensues. When you know, this ideal was definitely more firmly entrenched in the past, you know, that was not the mindset. I don't think people compared themselves to each other as much, simply because they didn't have the tools to that we do these days. But I certainly do have some of these feelings. Uh, Let me go back one more paragraph I'm going to read for a second here. Hearing a millennial say they want to travel or live somewhere new for a few years or enjoy their 20s before settling down has become a cliche in and of itself. But it is a true feeling that many of us hold and works better for me and my generation. These days, youth after college is believed to be a treasure best spent gaining profound experiences, feeling the pulse of a crowded city sidewalk, feeling the electricity of spiking underneath the skin while dancing for hours in the middle of a restaurant in Greece, feeling the warmth of being at home in an unknown place through an indescribable brief connection with a stranger sitting next to you, rather than being spent in a forlorn thought about where you, when you were truly free during those four years at UC Berkeley. So I have some of those feelings from school. You know, one in particular stands out. It was junior or senior year, I don't remember, but it was the spring. It was, you know, April and it was one of the first beautiful days of the semester, spring semester. And we had this sort of um, quad area in the at Rutgers where it was a bunch of buildings uh, that had classrooms. So in between classes, these open quad areas were just filled with students hanging out on the grass and sitting on benches and, you know, just being outside and enjoying the warm the warmth of the spring day and I had had class and I had some friends and we were about to go to class and we all just kind of looked at each other and we're like fuck this <laughs> let's go have some fun and we we blew off class that day and we went down to this place called Rutgers Gardens which is this little um, garden that has a bunch of um, exotic plants in it it's got a community garden it's just a really cool place that we had discovered and we had you know somebody brought some beers and you know some other stuff and we just ended up you know somebody had a frisbee and we were playing music and it was just one of those afternoons that was just like the perfect thing to do and looking back I'm so fucking glad I blew off class that day despite whatever consequence it caused me because I'll always have that memory of that just carefree lazy college afternoon in April where you know semester was winding down summer was coming and life felt fucking great And I hope people in college still have moments like that. But I think that this ideal is that the the whole college experience is filled with moments like that. And I could tell you my college experience was not. There's a lot of shitty ass times in college, right? Um, So you have to sort of put it in perspective. Some of it's great. Some of it is this idea that this will be the last time in your life that you will not have the life responsibilities of working and supporting yourself but that's sort of outdated as the um, article states because now nowadays today's students both traditional and non-traditional really have to be a little more serious because of the amount of 
financial uh, leverage in place. You know, there's a lot on the line. And I can respect people not being able to kind of have this carefree attitude because, you know, they're working their asses off because they're in school and and employed or they're just so stressed out because of how much it's costing them that they they deny themselves these pleasures because it's like I can't take off from school. It costs me so much to attend school. Why would I blow it off? I get that. So with that, let's get into today's topic. As I said, I I really am uh, a little disappointed at myself that I have not discussed in depth the stages of change. This is also known as the trans-theoretical model, but that's like a really bullshit name, stages of change model. So it's really sort of basic. There are six stages of change, and depending on the stage you're in is really, for me in my former life as a um, mental health practitioner, that was sort of figuring out what services to provide to somebody, the stages of change were pretty much how I determined that. So let me give you uh, the breakdown of what the different stages are, and I will relate them to an example. So we have, let me just name them first. So we have the pre-contemplation stage, then we have contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and relapse. So that's how it goes. So pre-contemplation is sort of what the name implies it's before you've even begun to contemplate making any kind of change so i'm going to use a goal a typical goal most people can relate to even if they have not been a cigarette smoker in the past they can relate because they've probably known somebody that smokes cigarettes that that struggled to quit so in the beginning right and i remember i was in college i remember these that day that i talked about i was smoking cigarettes like it was nobody's business and loving every second of it and i'm so happy now i don't smoke cigarettes but back then you know, on that college afternoon at Rutgers Gardens, as I puffed on my Camelites or my Parliaments or whatever I freaking smoked that time, that time in my life, I'm sure that I was in pre-contemplation regarding making any kind of change about quitting smoking. I loved smoking cigarettes back then. And being, you know, a 20, 21-year-old, I didn't really feel the consequences or, you know, you know at that point I felt pretty bulletproof. So I'm going to enjoy my cigarettes and I don't have a problem. And if you think I have a problem, fuck you. I don't. So that's pre-contemplation. No acknowledgement of any kind of need to change. Okay. And there's a lot of us walking around right now that have what other people would consider problems, but us, we're just like, eh, you know, I I, I do smoke cigarettes, but I like it. De-stresses me. I don't seem to have any negative health effects right now. So I'm not quitting. Okay. Then we move into contemplation. So it, again, is kind of what it implies, somebody now contemplating some kind of change. So the cigarette smoker grows up five years later. Maybe they went out the night before, partied, smoked two packs that night, wake up the next morning like, (coughs) oh, God, what the hell is going on? I, Man, I'm not feeling so hot. I may have a problem. I think I may need to quit smoking. I don't know. So that's contemplation, right? The person thinks they may have a problem, but still isn't really doing anything about it, right? That person wakes up, maybe they don't smoke that that morning, you know, once they start, you know, wiping the crust off and, you know, getting past the hangover, they're like, ah, you know, I'm gonna have a cigarette. Ah, that's delicious, okay. I may have felt that I needed to make a change this morning, but I'm feeling all right now. Let me uh, go out and 
buy another pack of cigarettes because I just smoked them all mine last night. So again, it's like this thought of I may have a problem. I think about the fact that I have a problem sometimes, but I'm still not ready to kind of make any kind of changes. Okay. Now we move into preparation. So something major usually happens between contemplation and preparation to put that person into preparation. For a lot of, you know, in terms of uh, the classic alcoholism story, somebody has to, quote unquote, hit rock bottom, right? And that hitting of rock bottom signifies that person going from contemplation into preparation. Preparation signifies this idea of like, all right, I need to make a change. I'm going to make a change. That decision, they're ready. So now they move from contemplation into preparation. Now they're getting prepared to make that change, right? So the cigarette smoker, right? Five years, another five years go by, and now they're 30 years old, and they've been smoking at least a pack a day. And they go to the doctor one day, and the doctor's like, listen, dude, you know, your lungs aren't sounding so hot, you know? Or maybe they meet somebody, and that person is the, the person of their dreams. And that gives them the motivation, and that person hates cigarettes. And they're like, you know, I love you and all, but I'm not going to be able to be with a cigarette smoker, you know. And that person decides, you know what, all of these things are coming together. My doctor talked to me, my new you know, significant other talked to me. I've been feeling like I need to make a change. I'm ready. I'm going to go make a change. And person may then go back to the doctor and say, hey, I'm ready. Um, what options are there for me? to, you know, help and they might recommend the patch or the, some kind of pill or something. So preparation is that getting ready. Okay, I'm going to do it. They may still be smoking at this point, but they know that they've, they, they're going to be stopping soon. They're going to be making that change. And then action comes, the change is happening. Change happens for a little while. Um, you begin to feel the positive effects, right? The cigarette smoker sets their quit date during that preparation stage and actually stops and quits and they begin to feel good, you know, they stop coughing as much, they're starting to get a lot of positive reinforcement from their support network, right? That girlfriend is like, or boyfriend is like, wow, I'm so proud of you, you smell great, I want to have sex with you all the time because you're not smoking cigarettes, wow, and your parents are happy and everybody's happy and you're just going along feeling great. Action, right? Action goes along for a while, we move into maintenance, Maintenance is sort of keeping up with that change, right? The person has stayed quit for a year, two years, three years, maintenance, right? And then five years after they quit smoking and they're already married to that significant other and they're out one night by themselves or they're out one night without that significant other with a friend and they've had a few too much to drink and that friend is a cigarette smoker and they're like, oh man, I haven't had a cigarette in five years, man. God, I used to love smoking. And the person's like, hey, you want one? The person thinks about it for a second. It's like, yeah, what the fuck? I could have one. And then we have relapse. And that person may have been, again, been maintenance for five years. They may have quit for one week and then relapsed. So relapse can really happen at any point in time. They may have relapsed even before they took action, right? They were in preparation, getting ready, on their way to the doctor to get the patch to stop from continuing smoking. And then they decide, I ain't ready to do this turnaround, drive home, relapse. So relapse can happen at any point. And when you're done relapsing, you can return to any point. So somebody could be done relapsing, will kind of be in relapsing and be back in pre-contemplation. Like, you know what? I quit smoking. I know I did, but... Now that I'm smoking this cigarette, I think I'm going to go back to smoking. I really like it. 
and have no qualms about it. Or they might go right back to maintenance. They may have that cigarette that one day, wake up the next morning and be like, that was stupid, and go right back to maintenance and not be a cigarette smoker again and never have a cigarette again. Or maybe they have another one five years from now. You know, So relapse can happen at any point in this continuum of the stages of change. And the person after relapsing can return to any stage. Okay, so I have a, a, pictor, a pictorial to demonstrate the, the stages of change. And as I was talking about this story, I was thinking about how I would illustrate this. And, and the, cigarette, the cigarette goal is, is a good one because it's pretty basic and it's very um, descriptive of what relapse can, you know, the effect relapse can have on the stages of change. And I thought about my own, you know, recovery when I thought about the stages of change and how it affected me. And then I read this story about a pitcher for the New York Yankees called CC Sabathia. He's been somebody that I've uh, been a fan of over the years as I'm a Yankee fan. And CC Sabathia last year announced to the public that he was an alcoholic and getting going into rehabilitation and the, the the timing of it was really the big issue because he announced this right before the Yankees were about to start their playoffs and it was just such a bad timing you know everybody was like what you know you couldn't wait and so he posted a an article he wrote an article about his experience and it just got posted online the other day so I wanted to talk about some of the quotes from this article in reference to the stages of change. And let me know if you in any way relate, because I certainly can relate to CeCe's story here. So it begins, or early in this article, when my wife and close friends started telling me they thought I had a problem, I'd always have the right response. I'd say what I thought they wanted to hear so that they could feel better in that moment. But it was never actually coming from my heart. I never actually wanted to stop drinking. And I didn't think I needed to. I thought I had everything under control. So what does that sound like, guys? Pre-contemplation, right? Uh, He didn't want to stop. Didn't want to make a change. Didn't think he needed to kind of make any change at all. And I can relate to that because I felt that way throughout much of my early years of drinking Uh, college into my early 20s. Returning to the article, but last October, while sitting all alone in a hotel room, I finally accepted the reality that I had been avoiding for so long. I need help. I was in Baltimore at the time. It was last Sunday of the regular season, and we were about to start the playoffs. We'd gotten rained out on Friday, and I'd spent most of the weekend alone in my hotel room clearing out the minibar. We had a game that day, and I knew I wouldn't be able to help my teammates if they needed me. I was struggling to function physically, but I also felt awful in so many other ways. It struck me how tired I was of feeling sick, how exhausted I was after keeping this secret for so long. Then it finally hit me. You don't have to live like this. So when we think about the stages of change, he had probably been in contemplation for some time about his problem. You know, this just happened last year. He's a veteran. He's 34-ish. Um, so he's not a young buck. And the, this, the article talks a lot about his early days in baseball 
and how you know alcohol was the great social lubricant and it was just easy for him to be the life of the party when he got his few drinks in him and maybe after a particularly rough night he would wake up in the morning and kind of wonder like oh maybe I should change but you know nothing nothing made him change until you know this time and so it finally hit him he doesn't have to live like this and that really signified to me if I'm looking at the stages of change him going from contemplation into preparation at that point so returning to a little bit prior to that in it wasn't until 2012 so this is a few years before last October that I really thought that there was something wrong I also learned how big the divide is between having a problem and asking for help I didn't seek out professional help initially for a number of reasons one of the biggest reasons was pride I thought that this was something I could control I never thought that I actually had an addiction or a disease I figured I just needed to have better judgment when I drank, whether that was just sticking to beer or saying I'd only have a couple of drinks, which would turn into 10. Like I said, I really never wanted to stop drinking, so I would start going through cycles where I'd try to stop cold turkey while knowing in the back of my mind that I'd drink again eventually. It would always be two or three months sober, then a relapse. Three more weeks sober, then another relapse. I wasn't getting any better. So when I hear that, I think about that cycle of going from contemplation to preparation like oh I'm going to do something back to pre-contemplation you know this this cycle of relapse he was never truly and never got to action because he said he never really wanted to stop drinking he just wanted to stop for a little while and then go back he knew he would he would go back I I can totally relate to this feeling it was like I'm just gonna I'm gonna limit it you know, I won't drink vodka anymore. I'll just drink beer. That'll be fine. And you just stay in this perpetual cycle of like, ah, maybe I have a problem. Ah, I'm going to do a little bit to get better. Ah, fuck it. I'm not going to do anything. Returning to the article. That's why I finally made the decision in October to get help. Honestly, it would have been easier in a lot of ways, if I waited, I would have drawn much less attention to myself. But if I didn't enter rehab right away, I knew I wouldn't go through with it. With addictions, it takes so much effort to convince yourself to do something to fix the problem. But it's very easy to talk yourself out of going through with it. Of course, this timing, the timing wasn't the best for the Yankees and the fans. But that wasn't my main concern. When I decided to get help, I wasn't scared anymore of what people would think of me. I was scared of drinking again. So many of the major choices in my life, going back to when I was just a kid, had been baseball decisions, but this was a life decision. That Sunday, when I went into Joe Girardi's office and told him I needed help, I was definitely worried. Here we were, about to go to the playoffs, where the arms are everything, and I was telling my boss that I was physically and mentally couldn't be a part of it. We're with you 100%, he said. When Joe said that, it was a tremendous weight had been lifted off of me. I didn't need to lie anymore. It was a blessing, really. And I think about that, and I think about, you know, the time that I just finally came out and told my now wife that I'm a fucking alcoholic. <laughs> and that was the moment when, you know, it became true preparation towards true action. And that story that CC tells of going into Joe Girardi who's the manager of the Yankees and saying it and just the relief he felt afterwards is something that 
it cannot be explained. It was just such an uplifting feeling to know that I didn't have to go around living a lie anymore. And here, this guy, you know, former all-star, making 20, 25 million bucks a year, you know, set up for life. Uh, he, he went through it exactly the same way. And I'm sure there's people out there listening to this podcast that feel that same way too, that know they need to make this change desperately, whether it's, you know, substance abuse, whether it's, you know, going into treatment for mental health problems, whether it's you're flunking out of school and you know that this is not the right path for you and you need to tell somebody about it and you're desperately scared because you know it's going to involve making big changes and those changes are scary. But knowing where you're at in these stages of change is going to be truly helpful because, like I said, it's kind of could feel like, oh, I'm going to, I think I'm going to make a change, but it's not that I'm going to make a change. It's not going into Joe Girardi office type of, I'm going to make a change. It's telling yourself, oh, I'm going to drink a little less tonight type of change. So there's change and then there's change. So that was last October. He's been through treatment. He's feeling good. He's in spring training now. I can't wait to see how he does this semester. Looking back, well, returning to the article again, if I could go back, I wish I could have told myself not to be so scared of being judged for asking for help. I wish I understood that this situation wasn't like a pitch that felt off. I couldn't just try and work it out of my work it out on my own until it was fixed. But now I'm on the other side of things. I feel at peace. I feel good about myself. I feel good about my body. And I'm really looking forward to coming into this season with a new frame of mind. Of course, I understand I can relapse. And that's why I've tried to be as open and public about the situation as I can. I want to be held accountable. If somebody sees me with a drink or in a bad situation, I want them to say something. Because I really don't want to drink anymore. I don't want any part of it. So what does that sound like, right? That sounds like somebody that's really in full action and and along in their recovery, right? You know, I don't know if he's in maintenance yet. And really, the differentiation between action and maintenance is sort of blurry, right? I don't know how long you have to be doing something for it to be going from, into a maintenance stage. But he brings up relapse very openly, right? He knows I can relapse. So despite being in maintenance or action, wherever the hell he is right now, that relapse stage is always there. You can always go back. And he's saying, like, he's talking about accountability here. I want to be held accountable. I want somebody, if they see me with a drink, to be like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? And I remember that aspect of accountability, my own recovery, involved me that day that I talked to my wife, calling up all of the important people in my life, my brother... Um, close friends, my father, and telling them what I told her because I needed that same kind of accountability. I needed everybody to know. I needed it to be out on the table because that was truly this experience that he said of not having to live a lie anymore. Talks about support. I'm blessed to get support from those around me. There aren't any words to describe how amazing my wife has been throughout this process and all of my extended friends and family have been incredibly supportive as well. I'm very thankful for how my baseball family has picked me up. The Yankees have done everything they can to accommodate me. I've also gotten a lot of kind messages from guys around the league wishing me the best. So he talks about support here and how critical it was to his recovery. 
end to making that change. You know, think about it. He couldn't even come clean to his wife for many years that he really had a problem. And it took that that Sunday in October. And who knew when he woke up that day that that was going to be the day. But that was the day. And yeah, it was bad timing. But, you know, recovery doesn't care about that shit. So you got to strike when that iron is telling you to strike. And when your gut and your intuition are telling you, like, all right, I give up. It's time to make a change. Because let me tell you something, man. When you do do that and you do come clean and you ask for that help, the burden off of your shoulders that you've been feeling and carrying around because you've been scared and because you felt shame and because you didn't want to feel judged all goes away because you're out in the open now. The lies are out in the open or if you've been holding lies. Some people haven't been lying. But it's all out there and there's just such a breath of fresh air to come with that relief. Last little blurb from this article. When I was hiding all this, it was isolating. I was worried nobody would understand. But now it's out there. I don't have to live with that fear anymore. And that alone has really rejuvenated me. (sighs) Yeah. I know that feeling, CC. So I hope that, uh, you know, sharing some of this story can help you guys with any kind of change you're trying to make that has been a big fucking struggle for you. You may have set a goal in the beginning of the year to, to work on that, right? Maybe you set a goal like, I am going to, you know, manage my drinking or I'm going to stop drinking or maybe it's something less, you know, maybe it's just you want to get a B in this course this semester. But knowing where you're at in that process of, am I really just thinking about getting that B or am I ready to fucking buckle down and do it is means a tremendous amount of difference. You know, if you're only in contemplation, part of the goal is going to be moving you to action. You know, I will, you know, take the steps necessary to get that B. So... That's why I kind of felt like I was doing you guys a disservice because you need to know this before you set the goal or as you set the goal. When I was setting my goal of, you know, getting this online class up and running in the next three months, I I was already in action to a certain extent. I had been writing the content, you know. So if I had really just been at the initial stages, which where I was a year ago, I wouldn't have been able to set that goal because I didn't have it to the point where I knew what the steps were. And that's a problem, right? Some people know they need to make a change, but don't even know what that change is. And really, in the, in essence, that involves coming clean to somebody that does know, you know, I had a student in one of my classes, write to me that they were struggling with mental health issues and didn't know where to turn. And I felt so I felt so inadequate with my advice. You know, I gave advice. I, I wrote her back and I, I empathized and I, t- I gave her some resources, but I just felt like they were so like, I, I wish I could have done better for her, you know? And, you know, she's continued in my class and I got an email from her this morning, actually, saying, you know, I just wanted to follow up and thank you for your advice. I know I was able to get into counseling and, you know, I poured myself out to this person and I didn't realize all these problems 
and I'm on a, I'm on a path now. And I think about that person, you know, probably was in contemplation for quite a while before they took action to, you know, reach out to me, or if perhaps it was more the step of reaching out to the counselor, or perhaps it was even walking into that counselor's office, whatever, you know, step that was, that was the hardest one to do. The one where that person knew they were in a sense, like just kind of waving the white flag to say, all right, I need something here. And I don't know, maybe this person can give it to me, you know, truly was that moment where they moved into preparation. So this has been a pretty, uh, you know, kind of powerful episode for me. I hope you got some value out of it. Um, you know, the stages of change are, are pretty important when it comes to setting a goal because you got to know what stage you're at. And you have to have a really honest, you know, perspective about that in order to know what steps you need to take. So if you're somebody that's in contemplation right now and you're not really sure you want to make a change, the steps that you're going to do, as I said, you're going to prepare yourself to make that change as opposed to somebody that's already in action that's going to go ahead and take the steps. So this week, if you're struggling to achieve your goal, that's your home exercise. If you're struggling, confirm you're truly in the preparation or action stage when it comes to the goal you set at the beginning of this semester. And if not, if you're more in the pre-contemplation contemplation, then maybe adjust your strategies. It's not actually taking the steps. It's getting ready. What are you going to do to prepare yourself to take the steps? Or maybe you realize, you know what? This is not working for me right now. It's not too late to set a new goal. We're only halfway done with the semester. So we've got about eight more episodes. Can't wait to bring them to you. Uh, I hope that I'm able to bring you some interesting guests in the second half of this semester. I've had uh, had a bit of a, some bad luck recently with that, but I do have a few people lined up. So I'm excited to bring those to you. Thank you for listening. Hope you guys have a wonderful week. If it is spring break for you guys this week, enjoy it. It's hella nice out there in the Northeast. If you got yours coming up next week, enjoy it. I'll be back. Take care, everybody. Peace.